Hello and welcome to Not If I Reboot You First, a podcast where we take our favorite properties and reboot them before Hollywood has a chance to. It's a little bit like brainstorming fan fiction. <laughs> I'm Tanner, they, them. Sorry. Uh, uh, go finish finish the intro. And I'm Lindsay and I use she, her pronouns. And uh, sorry, um, the intro was thrown off because as soon as I said the words before Hollywood has a chance to, I realized that this will be a weird episode. On account of we're too late. Uh oh. <laughs> but let me start at the beginning. Let me start at me deciding for some reason, for some reason, I decided that Wikipedia didn't have the information I needed for this because, oh, by the way, I'm stealing your thunder. I'm the history person now. Oh. And so, of course, that means I had to do research, which is absolutely disgusting. I finished university so I could stop doing research, but I digress. I was doing my research, and I decided that Wikipedia didn't have the proper information, so I decided, let's go to the library and see what I can find on this subject. And the subject at hand for this week is dog sledding. And so I go to the library, I'm trying to find stuff, and the only two actual non-fiction reference books that I could find on dog sledding were, like, for one thing, they were mostly about modern dog sledding, and also they were both kids' books. Huh. So I had to go into the children's section of the library, which is... In the the basement, basically, it's on the lower level. Also, the ceilings are low. Like, they weren't so low that I couldn't operate, but they were way lower than the ceilings are used to. Yeah, so I'm guessing you went to the central branch. Yeah, I was at the downtown central branch in the low-ceiling children's library, and I walk in, they're like, I need these for, for reference. And the librarian's like, yeah, that does sometimes happen. I'm like, oh, good. I was worried that I was the weirdo, the weird 27-year-old who stalks into the children's section of the library with no children in tow. <laughs> Grabs a magic treehouse reference book. Oh. It's been a while since I've ever read those. Yeah. Which, by the way, turns out, uh, where'd I put it? Not that one. Oh yeah, I did find one non-children's reference book, except it wasn't, it was only barely about dog sledding, and it was set in the 50s, and we're not talking about the 50s, we're talking about the 20s today. Yeah. Uh, Magic Treehouse. It is called Dog Sledding and Extreme Sports, which means that half of this book is about the X Games. Ah. <laughs> Extreme. Technically, dog sledding is an extreme sport, but I guess they couldn't fill out an entire book with dog sledding information. So after that, it's like, you want to hear about, like, free climbing? You want to hear about the X Games? <laughs> sure. Want to hear about the invention of snowboarding? The guy who first made it called it a snurfboard. <laughs> <laughs> so I did end up going back to Wikipedia, which had profoundly more information on the subject at hand. So today, originally... The first nugget of my idea for this week was that we were going to re be rebooting Balto. Yeah. Now, Balto is a story of... Okay. The film Balto. <laughs> Let's be very clear. <laughs> the film of Balto is about a stray wolf dog living in Nome, Alaska, who really wants to be a sled dog and also date the sexy red husky, who's also a sled dog. Yeah. And... He has best friend Goose named Boris. He's Russian. He got so scared he had people bumps. Um, and then there's an outbreak of diphtheria in the city, only affecting the children for some reason. And so Balto I mean, it frequently affects children more often than adults. But yeah, it can affect anybody of any age. Get yourself vaccinated. Yes, please. But in yeah. the film, it was, for some reason, just the children. And so Balto, basically, he runs out after one of the sledders who went to get the serum because they were late coming in. And so he runs to find that the sledder has been knocked out. So he uses his wolf powers to guide them back home. And he saves the day. Yay. He's going out into a blizzard to find a dog he doesn't like to help bring it back home to a town that doesn't like him. Also, it had a polar bear voiced by Phil Collins for some reason. Huh. Interesting also, choice. Also, the closest thing to a villain was Steel, who's like the really arrogant sled dog that doesn't like Balto. He's racist against Balto. He's voiced by Jim Cummings. And let me tell you, once you find out that there's a villain voiced by Jim Cummings, all of a sudden they all just sound like Dark Tigger. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, 
Balto, the movie Balto, was very good. Um, very well made. Childhood classic. Yeah. I don't really think can be remade. Part of it because of the quality of the initial product, and part of it because it's it's a lie. It's all lies. Yeah. So, the historical event that Balto is based on is called the 1925 Serum Run to Gnome, also known as the Last Great Race of Mercy. And basically what happened, much like in the movie, there was a huge outbreak of diphtheria in the town of Nome. Um, it affected everyone of all ages, not just children. Um, they did have to quarantine everyone. It also affected the nearby uh, First Nation settlements. And in the final numbers, the doctor wrote that there were um, like seven casualties inside Nome, but the casualties in the First Nation settlements could have easily been in the hundreds because they probably would have just buried their dead without telling any authorities or anything. Yeah. And it would have been not only difficult in the weather, but just difficult getting permission from the governing bodies to go help them. Yeah, because um, when it comes to who has jurisdiction over First Nations territory in the United States of America it's far more like there's a lot of different overlapping jurisdictions and who is considered what and... <sighs> and also, they're not white people, so why should we bother yeah. with paperwork to help them? Yeah. The one good thing about Canada is we just have the one government body who's in charge of, <laughs> of who gets to be called First Nations. And they're still terrible. Yeah. Um, we'll probably be circling back to that, actually. Mm-hmm. So... It's 1925, there's an outbreak of diphtheria, and much like in the movie, they have to basically race to get the serum from, uh, where did it land? Because they uh, did have some serum initially, but it was all expired. Yeah. Another one of those great things about medicine. Do, in fact, check when stuff expires. Um, yeah. Let's see... So it was expired, it wasn't working, and so they're able to get the serum shipped to... A port on the southern shore of the Seward Peninsula from the Bering Strait, which was icebound, yeah. It had to... I'm just trying to... I, ca I can't track down the name of the port city, but it was shipped by freight train to the town of Nanana, and that's where the sled dog relay began. So basically the plan that they enacted... It was a two-pronged thing. From Nanana, they had sled dog teams basically traveling, and they would just switch over the serum every time they stopped at a town along the way. And they would go, like, 20 up to 50 miles each team, as fast as they can, as fast as they could. There were about one... I want to say about 20 racers... 20, 20 teams involved in the relay, and they had to cover a distance of over 600 miles. Here, Oh, here it is. Here's the numbers. 20 mushers and 150 sled dogs had to cover 674 miles, which is over 1,000 kilometers, and they did that in just over five days. Yeah. With, in severe blizzard conditions. Yeah, this was in the middle of winter, starting on January 27th at 9 p.m. Alaska Standard Time. In the middle of winter, in Arctic conditions. Minus two 50 degrees south from the circle. Yeah, minus 50 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 46 degrees Celsius, and this is before they were including the wind chill. Oh, that's disgusting. Yeah. But also <laughs> like, relevant. Yeah, and like we went through... Remember how, like, this week we went through, like, two days of minus 30? Yeah. <laughs> and we are far south from where this is happening. And so another factor is that they initially thought maybe we can just get it all airdropped into town. But there were only, like, three planes close enough that could deliver the serum, and they all froze when they tried to start them up because it was too cold. Yeah. They um, had water-cooled engines. Water yeah. freezes. <laughs> to be fair, plane technology was still pretty primitive at the time. From Nanana, we've got several racers relaying, relaying to on the way to Nome. But also, departing from Nome, we had Leonard Sapala, 
a Norwegian sled dogger and his team, led by his dog Togo, they're coming from Nome. And the plan was to meet at a certain point and hand it off, and then Sapala would turn around and his team would come back to Nome. Except when Sapala departed, he thought he would just be doing the whole thing on his own. Oh. He, he leaves Nome thinking, okay, yes, I can definitely do 674 miles. No, it'd be, it'd be twice that. It'd be, or iffy, because his distance counts the, when, when he left and when he came back, his whole round trip. But a significant distance. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to do that all on my own with one team of dog uh, within a week so that the serum doesn't expire. Yeah. And he's racing, and then it's after he departed that the rest of the state government decides he's not going to be enough. We need more racers. And so they're sending all the um, telegrams to all the towns they can. Like, get a racer who can go from point A to point B, or like point F to point G, just to get it there faster. Yeah. But Sapala outruns the telegram. The messages always arrive too late. <laughs> So Sapala doesn't know that he is meeting someone with the serum on the way and doing a handoff until he passes by a guy who just started his leg and the guy has to shout after him, No, I have the serum over here! Stop! <laughs> Stop! Come back! <laughs> and he does, fortunately. Yeah. Um, also, fun fact about Togo. He was named after the Japanese Admiral Togo Haichihiro who was known as the Nelson of the East after the, the Battle of Tsushima, part of the Russo-Japanese War, and he is the only Japanese person to get a town in Canada named after him. And a dog, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, Togo, Saskatchewan is still alive and kicking. Oh, cool. Yeah, whereas the town in Manitoba over the border, just north of where my grandparents live, Markov, it's, uh, it's practically a ghost town. Huh. Yeah. You know, you know what else is named after Togo? What? The movie Togo about the dog Togo. <laughs> Disney beat me to this episode, and I learned that two hours ago. Oh my god! <laughs> so the movie Togo came out in December of last year on Disney+, Plus <laughs> with Willem Dafoe as Leonard Sapala. <laughs> And as far as I can tell, it is pretty historically accurate and was very well received and did include the most wild events of the journey, like the time they got stuck on an ice floe as it started to break apart and Togo had to drag the rest of the sled out of the river. Oh, fuck. And by rest of the sled, I mean also Leonard and also the other dogs. Oh, poor thing. Yeah. He was 12 at the time as well. Yeah, like the movie also brings up the fact that he's an old man dog. I mean, yeah, 12 is old by dog standards. Yeah. So, as history continues, Leonard gets the serum and he he manages to make it from Gnome and then he he basically bypassed a whole bunch of checkpoints that he was supposed to stop at. Ah. He gets to just outside Shaktulik, then he goes through Ungalic and Isaac's Point and Gol Golovin before he finally basically, him and all the dogs essentially collapse. Yeah. <laughs> they cannot go anymore. <laughs> so then Charlie Olson grabs the serum and does another 25 mile leg, and then he gets to Bluff and it's taken over by Gunnar Kassen. Gunnar Kassen was a former co-worker of Lawrence Apollo, and he was the owner of the real historical Balto. Okay. So Gunnar and Balto's team, they go to safety point. They managed to get their way ahead of schedule, so the guy who was supposed to meet them was still asleep. Oh. And so they say, okay, well, it's going to take a while to wake him up and get everyone ready, so by the time he's ready, we'll have lost any lead we have, and people are dying. So Gunnar just blazes through, and he makes it to Gnome. And because he's the one who was at the very last leg, he gets all the credit, basically. Yeah. And... This, this is where, where dog scandals begin. Where Balto Gate begins. Ah. <laughs> because, so, Leonard Sapala was kind of furious that Balto got all the credit over Togo. Yeah. And he called Gunnar a glory hound and Balto a newspaper dog. Oh. 
Um, there's some stuff in historical records suggesting that Balto wasn't even the actual lead dog. Hmm. And also b- mainly because he had been trained a little bit by Sapala and then discarded because he wasn't that good. Oh. Which is interesting because it's kind of the opposite story of Togo, who initially was written off a whole bunch of times by Leonard until he realized that his personality was great for being the lead dog instead of just someone as part of the rest of the pack. Yeah. Um, and then also, so, um, in the movie Togo, Togo lives out the rest of his days with Sapala, but in real life, Sapala, like, after he took Togo on a little tour across the states just to try and get some money, he ended up starting a kennel in Maine, and he sold his whole team, including Togo, to Elizabeth Ricker, who was running the kennel. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> you want a quote that'll make you cry? Okay. On parting with his best dog, Sapala stated, It was sad parting on a cold gray March morning when Togo raised a small paw to my knee as if questioning why he was not going along with me. Oh! I never had a better dog than Togo. His stamina, loyalty, and intelligence could not be improved upon. Togo was the best dog that ever traveled the Alaska Trail. Aww. And, but Sapala did visit Togo a couple of times, um, like coming back to Maine to visit him in the kennel. And he was there um, when Togo was euthanized for old age. Yeah, uh, he was 16 at the time. Yeah. And, and Togo also helped basically start the Siberian husky breed, or the Alaskan husky breed, rather, in North America. Yeah. So Togo still has a long legacy. And even, even though his uh, ending wasn't quite as sweet as the movies, it was still a good ending because clearly Sapala cared about him. Yeah. Balto, after his whole tour and, like, a Madison Square Garden appearance and a statue being dedicated to him in Central Park, he and the rest of his team were sold to a vaudeville sideshow by Gunnar. Yep. Where they eventually had to be rescued by a completely different person because the conditions were so terrible. Yeah, the dogs ended up chained in a small area in a novelty museum and freak show in L.A. Yeah. Now, fortunately, they were able to live out the rest of their lives comfortably when they were saved and got into a zoo. But yeah. still, it, it does kind of pick, uh, paint a really bad picture of Gunnar, who was clearly just in it for the glory. Because that's another thing, is that some people say that Gunnar should have stopped and waited for the guy to get ready in Bluff or in, in where, wherever, where were you? Where are you? In Safety Point. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people saying that he should have, for his own dog's sake, stopped at safety point, but he just pressed through because of the glory. He didn't really care about saving anyone. Ah, some people. Yeah. Oh, there's one other uh, very amusing part of the historical situation that I want to bring up. Okay. So there were a lot of pushes to get the serum shipped to Nome via aircraft, because a lot of people didn't have any faith in the dog sledding teams to get it there in time. But there were just as many people who didn't have any faith in the airplanes to get it there in time, mainly because there was a huge risk that an airplane could take off full of serum, freeze, and crash, and then there would be no serum anywhere. Yeah, that's a fair thing to be afraid of. And according to Wikipedia, so let's see, the first, while the first batch of serum was traveling to Nanana, Governor Bone gave final authorization to the dog relay, but ordered Edward Wetzler, a post office inspector, to arrange a relay of the best drivers and dogs across the interior. The teams would travel day and night until they handed off the package to Sapala at Nulato. The decision outraged William Fentress Rongfont Thompson, publisher of the Fairbanks Daily News Miner and aircraft advocate, who helped line up the pilot and plane that were initially supposed to take the serum. And he used his paper to write scathing editorials. Oh, well. Uh, the longest flight was only 260 miles or 420 kilometers. And the worst conditions were between minus 10 Fahrenheit or minus 23 uh, degrees Celsius. I should say the worst conditions were like minus 10 or minus 23, which required so much winter clothing that the plane was almost unflyable. And the plane <laughs> made several crash landings. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, also <laughs> so, remember when we did the Mad Trapper ap- episode? Yeah. That was in the 1930s. Winter aircraft had improved a lot by then. Yeah. Like, 
So a lot of the stuff that I read pointed out that the serum one was also kind of the last great hurrah for dog sledding because this was basically right before the technology improved to the point where Arctic flying was a lot more viable. Yeah. So it was... I. I can't really compare it to a Pony Express, because Pony Express only lasted one year, whereas the dog sledding was an ancient tradition. But it kind of had that same vibe, where it all of a sudden flares up because of the serum run, and then just dies off, because everyone can get their cars and planes through now, so we don't have to worry about the dogs whatsoever. Yeah. But I will say that, so the initial serum run, it was basically just a stopgap, because yeah. they found like a spare 300,000 units of serum that they could get to Nome from another city but that would basically just keep the sickness at bay until they could get a larger supply and that yeah. was what was coming in from like a freighter down south yeah it's more about controlling the disease before it gets even worse yeah and it proved effective and they were lasting a decent time but then some more cases popped up in other surrounding towns and so now the worry was that it was going to be starting to spread yeah but the over 1 million units that were coming from Seattle were on their way up, and they were supposed to be flying in those ones because the weather was clearing up and everything, except the weather didn't clear up. Yeah. And the disease was spreading, and they needed to make sure, once again, it was a situation of we need to get there as fast as possible, but we also can't risk losing three times as much medicine as we tried to get there beforehand. Yeah. So, according... Uh, by February 3rd, the original 300,000 units were still effective. The batch from Seattle arrived on board the Animal Watson on February 7th. Acceding to pressure, Governor Bone authorized half to be delivered by plane. On yeah. February 8th, the first half of the second shipment began its trip by dog sled because the plane failed to start when a broken radiator shutter caused the engine to overheat. Yeah. The plane failed the next day as well and the mission was scrapped and the entire load of the million units of serum were also delivered by dog sled, uh, facing... The same harsh conditions and including many of the same drivers. Yeah. Thompson was very gracious in his editorials. <laughs> Again, it's still going to take a while for uh, plane technology to be able to withstand like high Arctic uh, weather. Actually, some of the biggest pioneers of that were the Soviets. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's mentioned several times in the Wikipedia article, like just how pissy Thompson would get about anyone not using an airplane. <laughs> uh, for example, so in the initial outbreak, a fifth death occurred on January 30th. Uh, Maynard and Sutherland renewed their campaign for flying the remaining serum by plane. Different proposals included flying a large aircraft 2,000 miles from Seattle to Nome, carrying a plane to the edge of the pack ice via Navy ship, and then launching it, or the original plan of flying the serum from Fairbanks. Despite receiving headline coverage across the country and the support of several cabinet departments, and from Arctic Explorer Roald Amundsen, the plans were rejected by experienced pilots, the entire Navy, and the governor. Thompson's editorials waxed virulent against those opposing the use of airplanes. <laughs> I bet during that second relay when the plane failed twice, someone was about to bring it up and he's like, DON'T! Say it. <laughs> <laughs> He's just sitting there at his typewriter. The brave and the noble pilots tried their best, but the glory was taken by the sinister dog sledders. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, before we get too far into my idea for this, because, so here's the thing. Originally, my idea was just let's tell the story of Togo. But Disney and Willem Dafoe beat me to it. All right, yeah. Willem Dafoe is, uh, plays Leonard in the movie. Yeah. So then I was thinking, well, what if we expanded this to the Iditarod? So yeah. the, the reason I'm doing it this week is because Iditarod is starting up. I actually did do the math wrong. Iditarod will be starting up the Saturday following this episode's release. I thought I would be getting it right on the weekend, but it's the first Saturday, and so it's not going to start until the 7th. Okay. Um, and also, Iditarod is not officially done to commemorate the Serum Run, but they do have many, um, things. Com the race itself doesn't commemorate the run, but there are a lot of traditions inside the race that commemorate it, and they yes. also use a lot of the same path because the Iditarod Trail itself is a pretty ancient trail that a lot of dog sledders used way before colonization to get from place to place. Yeah. 
Um, so I was thinking, what if we did this like in two two different time periods? Because my my idea was also like an HBO miniseries. Ooh, yeah. And that that is still kind of my idea. Maybe not necessarily HBO because what I might introduce to this might lighten things up a little bit. Do you remember the year two thousand two? Vaguely. Do you remember Cuba Gooding Jr.? Yes. Do you remember Snow Dogs? Yes, I do. So I'm throwing Snow Dogs into this reboot blender that also includes Balto, (laughs) Togo, and Thompson, the airplane fetishist. Look at those amazing aircraft! (laughs) Founder of the Mile High Club. (laughs) Sorry, I had to. So, on paper, the movie Snow Dogs is actually... It look, seems like a rather good movie, because it's about, like, rediscovering culture and family history and stuff like that. It's about a dentist who lives in Miami, who finds out he's adopted when his uh, biological mother passes away, and he gets, like, he inherits her sled dog team in the will. Yeah. And then he goes up to a, the Alaska, and he bonds with another woman there, and he tries to train himself to use the dogs. There's another racer there who wants to buy the dogs off of him and because he doesn't think he uh, he's a city slicker city boy city boy yeah especially Uh, coming from miami yeah uh then he finds out that the nasty old man trying to buy the dogs is also his father Uh uh-oh um family drama ensues he uh like he sells the dogs to the old guy because he doesn't believe he can do it. He moves back to Miami. Then he comes back when he finds out that his father didn't just abandon his mother like he said he did, but he actually stayed with her and they almost raised the kid together before deciding that they weren't ready to be parents. Mm-hmm. Um, he takes the like one of the dogs, or he takes the rest of the dogs that hadn't been taken with the old guy on the race, and they go find the guy. Uh, they, they bond with each other, and Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character manages to tame the real nasty lead dog. They all mush together, and they all get there in the end, and then Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character moves to Alaska at the end to open dentist practice there. And Ooh. Cisco takes over the Miami practice. Okay. Um, so it's, like, on paper, it's a real good movie, but it was kind of torn apart by a lot of unnecessary slapstick and... In my opinion, Cuba Gooding Jr. not being a great actor, yeah. and also the fact that the um, the the trailers for it made it look like it was going to be about talking sled dogs and just a wacky family comedy. Yeah, in that weird early aughts style. Yeah. Also, here's here's some fun trivia about the movie Snow Dogs. The movie Snow Dogs was also the inspiration for the reworking of a mafia comedy that was in development at Warner Brothers, because Snow Dogs was also made by Disney. Okay. The Warner Brothers film eventually became the comedy of 2003, Kangaroo Jack. Oh my god! (laughs) Now, I am not throwing Kangaroo Jack into this Franken-sled dog. Thank you! (laughs) But I'm just saying that I could have. God damn it. The Snow Dogs Kangaroo Jack Cinematic Universe. No. <laughs> I'm gonna have to ask Cassie if Kangaroo Jack is a Scooby Doo movie. Oh, yeah, Warner Bros. Oh, you're right. You're right. It is. I would have to ask her. This is canon. <laughs> I was 11 and I realized that movie was bad. <laughs> so, there's, there is one other thing that I'm going to throw into <laughs> this pot. <laughs> it's not Kangaroo Jack. It, 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 it's a fact. It's a factual fact. 
Okay. And the factual fact, well, it's, it's kind of a two-pronged thing, is that in one of in one of the reference books I got that did have information that wasn't in Wikipedia necessarily, pointed out the fact that like there's a lot of um, modern equipment that you need to successfully do the Iditarod, like, but for your own safety and the dog's safety. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, it says right at the top of the Wikipedia page. Teams generally race through blizzards causing whiteout conditions, sub-zero temperatures, and gale force winds, which can cause the wind chill to reach minus 100 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 73 degrees Celsius. Yeah. So, and it's still like, dark. Yeah. So they, like, they have to get basically a specialized harness for every dog. They get all the dogs have to get booties. Um, yeah. I imagine training on how to properly walk in booties. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta be awkward. Because you, we, we all know what it's like when you give a dog shoes. <laughs> yes. I've seen a lot of that in, um, in Ottawa because of the heavy, heavy amount of salting that uh, the city of Ottawa does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you also have to have a well-crafted sled. Uh, that are usually made out of plastic or aluminum. They used to be made out of wood or rawhide, but apparently the dogs would just chew on that for fun. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> oh, my My grandparents' old dog just destroyed a pair of leather shoes I had. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you also need, like, you need the sleeping bag, you need the coats, you need, you need everything. You need everything yeah. and you have all of that. And so it gets really expensive. And so I did actually find an article on NPR... Um, wait, no, this is the wrong article. Hang on. The article I did find was uh, k2.org. Uh, basically, it's talking about how there are hardly any First Nations competitors in the Iditarod races. Hmm. And, like, a majority of the uh, mushers in the original serum run were native. Yeah. And, of course, dog sledding itself has a long date of tradition uh like in both north america and in russia like th that's yeah. where it was created and developed and yeah there are a lot of pioneers that are caucasian and came from like this like, european heritage yeah a lot of danish and finnish and scandinavian people yeah but it it is really unfortunate that it's kind of the high cost of competing in the race properly is pushing out the potential for a lot of First Nations competitors. Yes. Now, on the upside, uh, Peter Kaiser, who won last year's race, yeah. he is of UKIP descent. Okay. And he won a lot of praise from the a lot of other, or sorry, UPIC. Yeah. A lot of UPIC people are really proud of him, and it's a really great win. But it, like, does kind of highlight the fact that, once again, it's a whole bunch of white Europeans kind of pushing out a traditionally native thing. Yeah. So, my idea is a, a two-pronged approach for this HBO miniseries, where half of it is set in the past, during the serum run itself. Yeah. And it's going to focus on all the racers. Not just Sapala, not just Gunnar. It's going to focus on all of them and all their teams, or at least yeah. most of them, because some of them were only there for a little bit. Um, the guy who ended up passing the serum off to Ivanson, he technically only did half a mile. Oh. Because he just started, and then he sees... Then, <laughs> Actually, I think also he even had a, a crash or something. Yeah. Let me find you. Da, da, da. Oh, Henry Ivanov. <laughs> um... About half a mile out of side of Shaktalik, he had to settle a fight in his team, and while he was stopped, he saw he saw Sapala's team approaching from the other direction and had to flag him down. <laughs> oh, poor guy. So he he he, get, he like leaves immediately. His dog stopped fighting. He has to like get there and say, "Please, please, just relax." And then he sees Sapala kind of like, "Oh, yeah, okay, yo, <laughs> yo, stop." <laughs> But yeah, so half of it is set during the serum run itself, and like I would even have a subplot. It it might have to be made whole cloth and not necessarily based on historical records because the historical records are probably going to ignore this stuff. But there should be a plot about 
the nearby First Nations communities having to deal with it as well. Yeah. Maybe invent whole cloth another musher to come from there if we don't have substantial records to tell the real stories. And because at least then we have some kind of person representing the native community. Yeah. And then in the modern day, during the modern Iditarod, we can have a descendant of one of the First Nations racers. And they're training. It's basically a, a sports movie in this where they're training to compete in the Iditarod like, in their memory, for their honor, for their people, that kind of stuff. That sounds cool. And given that this is a, a movie about Alaskan history and Alaskan culture... Oh, uh, well, a miniseries. A miniseries, yeah. It has to be a miniseries so that we can highlight a majority of the racers and also have room for the yeah. airplane scandal newspaper. Yes. So, I was thinking, huh, maybe we can film on site Ooh. Because I bet the state of Alaska would be very willing to give out some tax breaks for this. Oh yeah, especially draw attention to it. Yeah. Wait, you want to make a movie about us actually up here in Alaska? Oh my god, yes! <laughs> uh, looks like most of Togo was filmed in Alberta. Yeah, that's what usually happens because um, slightly more reasonable weather to deal with. Yeah, but you can also get close to the mountains, so... Yeah. You yeah. got options. Yeah. Um, uh, now I'm curious where Snow, Go Snow Dogs was filmed. Uh, uh, Canmore. Yeah. Um, actually, so here's another weird thing about Snow Dogs. <laughs> so I don't know whether the Iditarod is like the Olympics where you have to pay a licensing fee to talk about them in your stuff. Ah. Or something like that. Like... I'm pretty sure if you make a video game involving the any kind of Olympics or film involving the Olympics, like you have to get permission from the IOC, and I think they get a portion of the the royalties or stuff like that. It's a weird situation. Yeah, I don't know if the Iditarod is like that, but I was reading through the summary of Snow Dogs on Wikipedia, and it talks a lot about or a lot of the terminology they use is like serial numbers filed off of stuff that happens in. The Iditarod, for example, <laughs> it's not called the Iditarod. It is called the Arctic Challenge Sled Dog Race. Yeah. There's the Widow's Lantern, which is a light that is lit at the start of the race, and it stays lit until the very last team crosses the finish line. Okay. But in the movie, it was changed to the Arctic Flame. Ah. The, there's also a trophy that you get for being the last team to arrive, which is basically the, the endurance trophy, essentially. Yeah. And for, like, I can't remember what it's called in real life, but they also have an Arctic Flame Trophy in the movie. Even the town that it takes place in oh. is not real. Okay. Uh, because in the movie Snow Dogs, it's called Tolketna. But in real life, it's called Talkeetna. Oh, that is a major file in Austin serial numbers. Um, but where'd the third book go? Here it is. And there's also, like, this one I don't think is even part of the trail. No. So, Talkeetna is not part of the trail, but there's another town called Takotna, which is part of the trail. Oh, God. So, they basically slammed together two Alaskan towns to make their own bespoke Alaskan town, which they didn't really need to do. Yeah. And apparently... According to people who live in small-town Alaska, it's actually a very good representation of what it's like to live in small-town Alaska. Okay. So that just raises the question, why did you not just choose a real small town in Alaska? Yeah. And also, I'm also wondering, like, did you not want to shell out money for the Iditarod? Or did you just want to be special and not reference the Iditarod? Oh, man. Because, like, the licensing fees cannot be that bad. Especially when you got Disney money. Well, it was a Disney Live Action movie in 2002. Okay, so most of that money's going over to Pixar. Yeah. Like, y you gotta remember, in the 2000s, in the knots, you could say Disney could go bankrupt and not get a weird look. Yeah, that was a kind of a rough time. Oh, also, I'd, I probably should have brought this up earlier, but I, I was also reading to make sure that the animals were treated well in sled dog racing, yeah. because any sport that involves animals, you're going to be really concerned. Yeah. 
Yeah. But they're, they are, not only are they treated well, they are mandatorily treated well. Yeah. Like, they're, in the race itself, there are mandatory rests. Like, you are required to take two eight-hour rests and a 24-hour rest, and you can choose when and where to take them, but they have to be done. Yeah. To make sure that you don't exhaust the dogs and yourself. Yeah, You also have to... Well, this is such a dangerous race to begin with. Exactly. There are also, I think it said, 21 different checkpoints along the race that you have to check in at. Even if you're just pulling up, saying, yo, it's me, and then leaving again, you have to check in with them. And there are vets at every single checkpoint that, so actually, no, you can't even just breeze through with a wave and a wink. You have to stop, and the vets do like a quick look over on all your dogs to make sure they're okay. And if there's any that the vets say are not able to race anymore or are at risk of exacerbating stuff if they continue to race they are pulled off the team and you have to reconfigure your whole sled to make sure that you can race with minus one or two dogs yeah but your other option is just dropping out of the race yeah because they yeah they will not let you endanger the dog yeah so if if stuff happens on the trail where dogs are injured or hurt it's either a bad trainer who Unfortunately, let's be real, they shouldn't be trusted with dogs in the first place, and it's not the fault of the Iditarod, or it's a natural disaster situation. Like, yeah. the one, at least one time where someone got bowled over by a moose. <laughs> I know I shouldn't laugh, but like, because nothing two, two stops a dogs, moose. Two of their dogs were killed, and the rest were all oh. injured. Oh, okay. And, I... she did, and the musher, she did not finish. Yeah, okay. I shouldn't have laughed, but, like... It's... Saying anything involving getting bowled over by moose is funny until you stop and think about how moose are prehistoric megafauna and they will rule the world again one day. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a very iconic, uh, very short video of a moose. I think it's a fully adult bull moose running through the snow. And it's, like, the old photo or the old uh, film of, like trains with the snow plows just going like yeah (laughs) it's like you will die Mm -hmm. like um so going on this uh moose tangent um i've started seeing a lot more uh moose crossing signs around here (laughs) oh boy because uh yeah they're wandering south now uh ever since people well Basically, starting back in the 1950s, a lot of people have been moving out of rural areas into urban areas, and this has really helped with the wildlife uh, returning back to former like pre-colonization numbers and territory, which means that they're wandering further south than what they used to be. <laughs> so, yeah. And the thing is, if you get into an accident with your car and a moose, the moose will win. Especially cars, because, like, their antlers will go straight through the uh, windshield. So, okay, so here's something. So the woman who got hit by a moose, Susan Butcher, she did later go on to become a four-time Iditarod winner. Okay. And also, in 1985, when that happened, that was also the first year where a woman won the race, and that was Libby Riddles. That's good. The very first woman to finish the race was back in 1974, Mary Shields. Okay. Her lead dog was named Cabbage. Aww. <laughs> Mary said she named him that because he was a very silly looking little puppy. Aww. <laughs> um, and honestly, I think that's all I have for the... Mainly, I just wanted to talk about Baltogate. Yeah! <laughs> Balto was a... Mind you, okay, Balto, Balto doesn't deserve the, um, the, the slandering. Yeah, he was it's still a good Gunnar. boy. These were all good boys and girls. Yes, Gunnar Kassen is a slander and a hack. Yeah. But all the dogs who took part in this deserve all the belly rubs and treats. Yes. Absolutely. Um, Nichelle Nichols is in Snow Dogs, and I remember her performance being pretty good, actually. Well, she's always given good performances. Actually, yeah. If, if I remember correctly, all the performances in Snow Dogs were pretty good. Yeah. Except probably Cuba. Kibble was okay, but it's one of those, like, he's here, the other actors are, like, here? Yeah. And up? Yeah. Oh, and his dad was played by James Coburn in one of his final roles. Yeah. Again, one of those, yeah, you're good, but you're surrounded by, like, superior talent. Yeah. 
I mean, listen, ap apparently he's done some really good dramatic roles, but the only time I have ever seen him and liked him was in Rat Race. <laughs> which is not about sled dogs. Yeah. Rat Race is a lot closer to Kangaroo Jack. <sighs> Should I put Kangaroo Jack on the list? I mean, it's your funeral. Kangaroo Jack was also advertised as a funny talking animal movie. Oh. I barely remember what it was supposed to be about. Um, there was two guys who had money. They had to get to a mobster. But then in the outback, they accidentally hit a kangaroo with their car. And so then they, like, did, like, ten minutes of weekend with Bernie's with the kangaroo. And they, like, put the coat on the kangaroo and took pictures with it. And then the kangaroo, like, woke up and, like, ran away. And they realized the money was in the coat. So they had to chase down the kangaroo to get the money out of the coat. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that because um, when I was working at the ski hill, there was a lot of Australians and New Zealanders, and the Australian girl I was working with at the <laughs> group check-in said that basically we were making comparison between like their megafauna and our megafauna, and she's like, "Yeah, <laughs> kangaroos are a lot like your moose." <laughs> <laughs> They will fight you. <laughs> I'm pretty sure a moose would win in a fight against a kangaroo. Yeah, but when it comes to, like, damage to car versus damage to them. <laughs> <laughs> and even worse is the wombats, because they're small. <laughs> they kill things with their butts. Yeah. <laughs> Man, Big Dave once told us about um, this one time he was golfing around Canberra. And they had to evacuate the golf course he was on because of a king brown snake slithering onto the greens. So, I've pretty much... Can you think of anything else to put in this the Sled Dog miniseries? Oh! No, but it might be a good backdoor way to get more interesting series about Arctic stuff in general. Yeah, for sure. Because, like, well, if we... We could probably spread it spread it around a bit to different uh, cable companies and all that, but and different streaming services. But like the other show I was thinking about was like the Terror, which is all about the Franklin Expedition with a, a horror twist to it. Yeah, even yeah. though it's already a pretty horrific situation to begin with. They really needed to put a man faced bear in there just to drive the point home. Yeah, I'm just gonna go with everybody was like full of lead poisoning and botulism by that point. And starving. And cold. You start seeing stuff. Um, but yeah, there's like a whole bunch of other stuff that we could do up in the Arctic. We've already done the Mad Trapper. Um, oh. I don't think there's been a proper movie about World Amundsen, who actually reached both the North Pole and the South Pole. Yeah, but he also said that we should be flying the serum. So what does he know? <laughs> <laughs> like he was thinking outside of the box <laughs> fortunately it didn't quite work i have one more fun fact yeah about the iditarod okay and i got this from mush sled dogs of the iditarod published <laughs> by Scholastic. scholastic um eating on the trail is tough but if yeah. mushers take their 24-hour layover in Takatna, they can order fresh cheeseburgers and eat as many homemade pies as they want. Aww. That's gotta feel interesting when you're mushing afterwards. I hope that there are, like, meat pies for the dogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go, it's just all beef. <laughs> <laughs> there would the be pie. nothing left. Don't after, eat the sled. Like... Don't eat the sled. <laughs> <laughs> oh, why did I build this sled entirely out of bones? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think with that, it's time to mush on over to a friendship promo. Hi, I'm Caitlin. I'm Jess. And I'm Monty, and this is Palin' Around. Palin' Around is a critical podcast focusing on video games, fandom, pop culture, and how they interact with the internet. Twice a month, we'll be diving into big topics and asking the hard-hitting questions, like... Why can't Blizzard get its shit together? How does crunch culture tie into the toxic masculinity of the games industry? How has being fandom trash impacted our adult lives? 
and everything in between. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice and pal around with us. So, Lindsay. Yeah, Tanner. Where can people find you on the internet? I'm on Twitter at LindsayM476. It's Lindsay spelled with an A, and you can get to all my other social media bullshits from there. Tanner, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at SparkyUpstart, and on Instagram at SparkyYoungUpstart. I remember when I was doing a daily selfie thing. Well, that kind of stopped, because it's hard to think of a new post to do every day. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, still, I'm still trying. Anyways, this very podcast can be found on Twitter at N-I-I-R-Y-F-Pod. Those are the letters for not if I reboot you first, and they're pronounced not a wolf, not a dog, but a hero. <laughs> also, Boris the Goose will be in this miniseries, and he'll be the only talking animal. Yes. <laughs> and you can find this uh, podcast on Instagram at not if I reboot you first. That's all one word. The hashtag is N I I R Y F, and that is pronounced mush. You can also email us at notifyrebootyourfirst at gmail.com. You can send us your comments, critiques, criticisms, or your opinions on dog conspiracy theories. <laughs> you can even ask to be a guest, but if you do, make sure you send us a hint instead of the entire idea, because we like being surprised. If you'd like to support us financially, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash notifyrebootyourfirst, where you can get several bonuses, such as a weekly shout-out for all of our patrons, including Charlie and Cassidy. Thanks, Charlie and Cassidy! You can also rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice, and if you can't find us on your podcatcher of choice, then contact me and I'll try and get us in there. Last but not least, our cover art, as always, is by I Alex, a.k.a. Pachu, and her work can be found on ptchew.com. And our theme music is done by our friend Sean Clake, and you can contact us to find out how to contact him if you'd like music of his own for your own. Tanner. Lindsay. Want a hint for next week's episode? I do, because now we're in uncharted territory. We kind of had all of February mapped out to each other, and now I have no idea what we're going into. Well, next week is going to be a true story. It happened to a friend of a friend of mine. Oh, boy! (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to get absolutely fucked up next week. (laughs) Yeah! But not... (laughs) If I reboot you first. Bye.